0: Happy Saturday, bingers. As a special bonus for you this week, I am joined by legendary investigator best known for his work that led to the capture of serial rapist and murderer Joseph D'Angelo, also known as the Golden State Killer. You've seen him recently on the reboot of America's Most Wanted, and you can listen to him break down cases every week on his Murder Squad podcast. His dreamy blue eyes have captured the hearts of millions, the one and only Paul Holes. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. It looks like uh where you're at in Colorado, it's sunny, it looks like in the background. Yeah, well, you know, right now it's mid
1: afternoon and, and it's cloudy and it is down in uh the teens in terms of the temperatures.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. See, I, we were talking talking off the air. You're in Colorado Springs. I went to college in Boulder and you haven't been you need to make that trip. They say you have three hundred and sixty sunny days a year in Boulder.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I I definitely plan
0: on on getting up there, just haven't had the opportunity to yet. Nice. And uh, and so getting into your background a little bit, most of my audience knows kind of your professional background. We will touch on that, but you mentioned, so right after you retired from work out in California, you moved to Colorado, or how did you end up there? Do you have roots in Colorado? How did you end up there?
1: I have no roots whatsoever. You yeah, know, this literally was, you know, as I was, Aging in my career, getting towards the end, Uh, you know, conversations with the family was like, we're we're going to move out of the Bay Area and move out of California. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just where and, uh, you know, thought we might end up in the Pacific Northwest because we had been up there absolutely beautiful, uh, just stunning Mm -hmm. up there. But then we, we uh, binge watched uh, a, a Netflix show called The Killing, which was about this female homicide detector, oh, detective out of I Seattle. I exactly the
0: one you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. And in every single episode, it is pouring rain. And my wife turned uh-huh. to me and said, nope, we're not moving there. <laughs> <laughs> But where we were living in California was Vacaville, and uh, I, w- I actually ended up in Vacaville because my dad was in the Air Force and was stationed at Travis Air Force Base for part of his career, and and so it's a military town. And so my wife had talked to some of the military wives that were part of the mommy network with the kids at school, and, you know, of course, they had lived in a variety of places being military, mm-hmm. and uh, a fair number of them said, you know, if we were to move back to some place where we had been before, it'd be Colorado Springs. And that's what we did is we ended up researching Colorado Springs online, flew out, did a, you know, kind of quick uh, tour of it and said, yeah, this is, this is nice, you know, and at least to get, I have uh, a younger set of kids, uh, that, um, uh, are just now what the oldest is starting high school. And we thought, well, we'll, we'll get the kids at least through high school here. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. I retired. Um, you know, was not expecting my life to change as dramatically as it did. Uh, but uh, right after we retired, um, we got out here, bought a house, and I was literally out here buying a house when I
0: got notified about the DNA matching D'Angelo on the Golden State Killer case. That's crazy. I'm going to have to have my wife not listen to this episode because I, t- I made the mistake of taking her out to visit Colorado with me a few years ago on a vacation, and she's been telling me ever since that, we're moving there, <laughs> <laughs> and I've been telling her maybe, maybe we should finish working before we do that. Yeah, wh- where are you at? I'm in Southwest Michigan. Oh, which is which is which is not exactly picturesque compared to Colorado. So that's why she she loved being up in the mountains and and everything when we were there. So she wants she wants to go pretty bad, um, and I'm trying to keep pushing that back a few because I'm we're I have kids about the same age. My all well, my oldest stepson just graduated high school, and my. My oldest boy is uh, a sophomore right now okay all right um, And so the first first really serious question for you is how do you have your oldest kid just now going into high school and you retired and a follow-up question what am I doing wrong?
1: <laughs> well that I, that that that's my oldest kid that is still in the house I, okay. I actually have a, a an, two older kids from my first marriage. And so Uh uh, my oldest is 27. Uh, She's married. I have a granddaughter. And then I've got uh, my oldest son, who is 24, living in Wisconsin
0: with my ex. Oh, gotcha. So you have kind of had the start similar to me, a nice start over after after a few years. That's
1: that's exactly it. You know, it was, it was like you know when my first set of kids finally got out of diapers. You know, s- certain things in the personal life didn't uh, didn't go as well as planned, and then I got remarried, and then I ended up having right away, you know, more kids, and so I had. Was dealing with babies and diapers again. It was like I was dealing with diapers for fifteen years straight. It
0: seemed like <laughs> that's terrible. So, how, how old is your youngest? Uh, she is now thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, I've got I've got a, a nine still in the house. I have a nine and a fifteen and a sixteen year old.
1: Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. You're so by, if any
0: more diapers come to the rough household, I'm moving out because I'm done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. No. I'm I'm definitely done on that front.
0: Yeah. So uh, getting into your career a little bit, as I said, most, I mean, most anybody that knows anything about true crime knows who Paul Holes is. But for anybody who doesn't, what was your your background? You mentioned, I want to get into a little bit too after this, that your career, your life took a turn that you probably weren't expecting. Right. But leading up to that, what did you do in law enforcement? Well, you know, I ended up... I became fascinated with
1: forensics and actually forensic pathology because of an, an old TV show, you know, Quincy, you, you may remember mm-hmm. that with, 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 oh, Jack sure. yep. yeah. And so I, I ended up going to college and I was in a pre-med uh, course, uh, uh, biochemistry with the expectation of going to medical school. And, uh, it, you know, my studies were not the best. <laughs> I ended up <laughs> goofing off a little bit and, uh, you know, my grades weren't up there to get me into med school. So then it was, well, what am I going to do if I'm not going to go, go to med school? And then I just happened to luck into finding out about a field called criminalistics. And Mm -hmm. that was at a job fair at UC Davis, where I went to college. I, uh, you know, kind of explored that. And then ultimately the, the first career position that I got, was as a forensic scientist. It was a forensic toxicologist with the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Crime Lab uh, back in 1990. Okay. And so as a civilian forensic toxicologist, I'm doing dope analysis. I'm doing alcohol analysis, you know, testifying to alcohol impairment. I'm spending a ton of time in court getting very comfortable testifying, but I always had my eye on uh, the position Uh, that was kind of across town from where I was working, the deputy sheriff criminalist position. And that, uh, my sheriff's office was the very last law enforcement agency in California that required their criminalists to be sworn officers, which at the time, I didn't have any desire to become a sworn officer. I was just Mm -hmm. interested in working homicides and going to crime scenes. But, you know, I bit the bullet. I went to the academy uh, and got the position as a deputy sheriff criminalist, and I was assigned to crime scene investigation in the old serology uh, unit where we're doing the ABO, blood testing, enzyme testing. Uh, and so I kind of, uh, you know, started my forensics career on in violent crimes doing this, this older technology, but we were getting
0: the very first DNA typing technology on board in the lab. So what, what year was that? Because that was early 90s. This is 19,
1: 1994.
0: So that was right kind of when DNA was, you know, the OJ case had kind of introduced D- DNA to the country.
1: Uh, exactly. In fact, you know, this was predating OJ just by a little bit. But as I'm mm-hmm. training in DNA, you know, the OJ Simpson case, the trial is on, on the TV. And so I'm watching some of the notable DNA experts in the field at the time, such as Dr. Robin Cotton, you know, from Cellmark, etc., testifying. But right off the bat, uh, even though the, you know, I was where I wanted to be, I just became fascinated with uh, serial predators because I read, my parents gave me a book for my birthday called Sexual Homicide. You know, and that's the one that the, the Netflix Mindhunter is based off of the study that they did interviewing all these mm-hmm. serial predators. So I became fascinated with serial predators uh, and cold cases. And literally the first cold case that I started working on uh, more as a hobby than anything was a case called the East Area Rapist case.
0: Right. Did, was it, He was East Area Rapist before he was the original Night Stalker. Right, and then they kind of then the connection was made between the two, and he became the Erons. Yes, (laughs) and then (laughs) later the the Golden State Killer.
1: Yes, and I can I can be blamed kind of for that connection because I was the one with with what I did uh, from the DNA side, and 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 basically a a kind of a telephonic investigation. I was the one that linked the East Area Rapist cases from Northern California to. The original Night Stalker homicides in Southern California. And quite frankly, I thought, well, that that is going to be my contribution to that series. Basically, I've done what, you know, uh, what probably is
0: all I'm going to do on that case. Right. And so in what year was that when you made that connection?
1: That connection, uh, you know, I initially had did the investigation in 1997 and landed with, with Mary Hong at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, but we had two different DNA technologies. It took four years for us to get on the same page, and at that point, I had promoted up to a lieutenant-level position within the Sheriff's Office, and so I assigned you know, the case out to a DNA analyst and then ultimately you know, had him call Mary down there at Orange County, and they're literally reading the DNA profile to each other on the phone. And it was at that point in March of 2001 when the East area rapist was identified as being the same offender as the original night
0: stalker. We just still didn't know who he was. Right. But that, that that's when you started linking things together. So a couple more questions about you and then we're going to get into the case. And I want to talk about all that, that process where we went from right there. Yep. So you build your way up through the ranks through the It was through the sheriff's department, right? With sheriff's office, yes. Yep, the sheriff's office. And then you end up retiring just, what, two days before Joe DeAngelo is finally arrested or the, before you get the DNA match? I,
1: I had a little bit of a a, a sidestep in there uh, from, you know, I, I did 24 years with the sheriff's office and I rose up to a division commander within the sheriff's office. So I oversaw all the forensic services division. I was a captain mm-hmm. level position. And then I, because of sort of this, n- this niche that I had made for myself in the county as the cold case person, uh, the former elected DA was interested in running cold cases out of the DA's office. And of course, he and I knew each other, and he created a position for me. So I lateraled over for the last roughly four years of my career into the DA's office to where now I am officially a cold case investigator as well as sort mm-hmm. of a forensic consultant to the prosecutors in the county.
0: Right. And then, so and that was the position that your retirement came right just just days before uh the final the, the identification was made.
1: Yeah, you know well it, the yeah, my retirement and I, I'm sure we'll get into the story. You know, I retired at the end of March and D'Angelo was arrested April 24th. So we still had about three weeks, three and a half weeks after I
0: retired until he's taken into custody. Right. Okay. So right after that, back to, the, to you personally, you, your career took a weird shift and you became, you know, I you know, we run in the same circles, Paul, and I've been around you at CrimeCon uh, several times and I could never get close to you because of the group of women that are following <laughs> you around. Uh, so you've now become the rock star of the true crime space. So uh, how did that happen? You know, it, it
1: was it, it just, it's to this day, it's still surreal. Um, and I think it was just a, the, the timing of everything Couldn't have worked out better for me from the media opportunity side, because when you think about 2018 on the Golden State Killer case, there was a local magazine, Diablo magazine did a a big spread on me and my investigation into the East Area Rapist case. And I was, there's a photograph of me on the cover of that magazine that ended up kind of being available online. And then two shows on this unsolved Golden State Killer case that I participated in aired in March of 2018. One was on HLN and one was on Discovery ID. Michelle McNamara's book also came out at this time frame in which my name was in there a fair amount. Mm -hmm. So in February and March of 2018, all of a sudden, you've got this huge population of people who are learning, maybe for the first time, about the Golden State Killer case, either through TV or reading a book or seeing the magazine article. And then we solve the case within weeks of, of me retiring in April of 2018. Mm-hmm. And so now there is all this attention you know, on, on me because my name was in Michelle's book. I was in these shows, and I had a role in helping solve the case. And it just took off from there, you know, and I was on the road and, and I can't complain about anything that happened, but it was, you know, two years, it was very draining. And I know you and I were talking a little bit off camera and you've had, you know, a similar experience on the media side where it is a, it is a rigorous schedule. And, you know, that's, that's where, you know, for those two years after I retired uh, I never got any downtime you know and i because mm-hmm. of the case and what was going on within the DA's office and my responsibilities I had last taken a vacation uh, about like a year and a half prior to me retiring so really for mm-hmm. three and a half years I never had any downtime up until this pandemic hit and then right you know then i then I got a break and, and unfortunately it's because of the pandemic, but it also was somewhat of a lifesaver in terms of I started to get my my feet underneath me again and start doing the things that I thought I'd be doing when I retired, such as you know taking my jeep out behind the mountains
0: or mountain bike riding and stuff. So sure, right? Yes, because you've you've had um, you've been on. I, I've come across you on several different TV shows, documentaries. Twenty twenty, you had your show on that What was the name of your show on not on Netflix on Oxygen? What was the name of your yeah. show on Oxygen? It was uh, the DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. Right. Yep, so there was the D- the DNA of Murder and then um and then you have your podcast which you do every week with Billy Jensen, The Murder Jensen Squad. Jensen Holes, The Murder Squad. So en- enough to keep you busy. It's just interesting that you made the the shift from law enforcement to media mogul and uh is it- and on that front is is my last serious question before we get into the case. So yesterday I interviewed David Ridgeon, who's the host of the Someone Knows Something podcast. Okay. And in order to set that up, I had to- he had a person that I had to c- call and and talk to and and make all the scheduling arrangements, and then today I'm I'm talking to you and to set this up, I had to. Uh, you you have a person that I called and, and talked to 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 schedule this meeting. So my question to you is is uh, why don't I have a person?
1: <laughs> I I I do not have a person. The, the, you went you went through Polly, who's the producer for Murder Squad, so she is okay. definitely. <laughs> I am not in the realm of having a personal assistant by any stretch, though there are times because I'm not necessarily somebody who's really good at staying on top of my schedule. I could use somebody who tells me, hey, you need to make this phone call or you need to show up here. <laughs>
0: right. um,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be nice to have an assistant to help out with a lot of the stuff. Uh, you, but,
0: you know, w- one of these days, Bob, you'll get there. You'll you'll have your own. <laughs> <laughs> what, what pisses me off right now is I have the same person you do. I have Mike, my my <laughs> producer. You think he'd schedule an interview for me? No, no. he's just over there clickety clack and editing away. You better you better get on him then. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Paul. So you played a massive role, integral role in in the identification and capture of Joseph D'Angelo, who was known as many things: the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, and and I know what everybody really wants to get into, and what I want to hear about is kind of your your involvement and how that process went beyond what we just spoke about in our introduction, uh, but first can you just give us the, just, a, just a real basic breakdown, you know, he had a, a reign of terror, what, about 10 years from 1976 to 1986?
1: Yeah, well, it turns out he 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 predates that by a couple of years. He's also the Visalia ransacker. Uh, so, starting down in Visalia in 1974, they were having a series of fetishbergs. Guy, this guy's breaking into residence, you know, going into the women's underwear drawers, doing weird things inside the houses, and uh, and then ultimately he tries to abduct a 16 year old girl out of her bed at night, and then her dad, Claude Snelling, tries to come to her rescue, and the ransacker drops the, the daughter and pulls a gun and shoots and kills Claude Snelling. He continues to commit these fetish burgs and then he gets confronted by an officer, a Visalia PD officer, Officer McGowan, and he actually shoots Officer McGowan. It's just that the bullet hits McGowan's flashlight, but the ransacker escapes and disappears. And that's at Mm -hmm. the end of December of 75. Six months later, Sacramento, in the East Area Sacramento, in this Rancho Cordova uh, neighborhood, we get our first East Area rapist attack in June of 76. And this is where now we have an offender that is breaking into houses in the middle of the night for the first 15 attacks. He's only attacking at houses where there's no men present. Mm-hmm. But on the 16th attack, he now breaks into a house where you have a couple sleeping in the bed and he it ends up making the woman tie up the male on the bed. He stacks dishes on the back of the male's uh, on, on the male's back as an alarm system and then takes the woman into the family room where he sexually assaults her. And that becomes part of his ongoing MO, where from that point on, Two-thirds of his attacks have male present. And this is something that's unusual about this offender as East Area Rapist, is that he is purposefully choosing couples versus trying to isolate a woman. So he is at great risk to himself going in with the, the big threat of a male present. And, and some of these men had guns inside the house, guns in their you know nightstand drawer. And yet he's still willing to take that risk in order to commit these crimes.
0: What do you, what do you think uh, triggered that evolution? I mean, I've seen theories that possibly that the, the media, when they pointed out that he never went into a house where there was a male home, yep. that that do you think that that might have been what triggered him to then start doing that? Yes, uh, th- there was a newspaper article
1: in the Sacramento Bee. I forget the exact date of that article. Uh, however, in in one of its paragraphs, it says he never attacks when there's a man home, and then. The, it wasn't the next attack. it was the, the attack after that is now he's attacking with a male present. And this is something with the East era rapist that uh, was seen is that he did respond to what was being read what he was reading in the media, whether it be on TV or in the newspaper articles. And here he was his, basically his manhood was being questioned, right? And he was like, okay, I'll right. show you, I can do this. And I think internally the offender had that this was something that satisfied him, you know, because once he starts doing it, he continues to do it. He doesn't just prove he can do it; it's something that he does over and over again. So it's something that I think
0: met a fundamental need psychologically for this offender. Okay, so so he he then shifts his mo. Now he's he's going in with with a male at home. He uh, you know he threatens the men. And and, like you said, stacks dishes on his back and says, you know, if I hear the dishes break, I'm going to kill your wife. And that becomes his MO for a while after that. And then where do we go from there? Well, in in
1: 1979, uh, mid-1979, up in the Bay Area in my jurisdiction, Danville, he has a a case that goes sideways on him. Uh, It's a couple that's asleep. He does his typical entry into the residence, but the male is a light sleeper. And the male kind of senses somebody's in the bedroom. and opens his eyes and looks at the foot of the bed and sees this man standing there pulling a, a ski mask on. So this male gets up and just confronts him face-to-face. Face, you know, what the F are you doing in my house? Get out of here, blah, blah, blah. And while this, while the, the, the male is doing this, his wife gets up out of the bed and runs out. And now mm. the East Area Rapist realizes, okay, I'm done here. He runs out. And, and that's the last Northern California case that we know of. Three months later, he shows up down in Santa Barbara, though the original investigators didn't know this yet, but he does an identical East Area rapist style attack where he, you know, gets the male bound with dishes on his back and the female separated. But while the female is laying there on the floor in the family room, the offenders pacing back and forth saying, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him this time. I'm going to kill him. And. Female victim hears this, she freaks out, she screams when he runs up and grabs her. The male hops out the backsliding door out of the master bedroom, and he bails. The the offender bails, he actually gets chased by the neighbor, who is an off-duty FBI agent, but he's able to escape. So at this point, he's verbalizing that he is wanting to escalate to homicide. And then two months later... Just a couple of blocks away from that uh, kind of aborted attack, that's where we have the first double homicide attributed to the original Knight's doctor, and that's Dr. Offerman and Dr. Manning. And they're, they're killed. Uh, they're both shot. And it appears that Dr. Offerman had slipped his bindings and tried to get up out of the bed to make a run at the offender. And the offender shoots and kills Offerman and then goes over to a bound to Deborah Manning and then shoots her in the top of the head and then runs off. So at this point now, the original sta- the original Night Stalker has started his series. But Southern California authorities have no idea that this is a serial rapist out of Northern
0: California. Right. Yeah, no one's made that connection at that
1: point. No, not at all. Now, the original investigators out of Contra Costa heard about that first attack down in Santa Barbara. And they're saying, that sounds like our guy. That sounds like the East Area Rapist all the way down there. But when they mm-hmm. reached out to Santa Barbara authorities, Santa Barbara's going, no, not same guy, and we're not, we're basically not going to cooperate with you. And so it really right. was at that point where the door was shut on the Northern California investigators, and the the East Area Rapist investigation does eventually go cold up in Northern California. They're not realizing oh their guy is now down in Southern California killing people.
0: Right now, do do you think there's another evolution there? Right, so he he evolves now from you know just women then to women and men and then he he murders this couple mm-hmm. uh and you said like the 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 case before that he's they, he, they literally hear him talking about wanting to kill them yeah like is that is that something you you in a in a in a serial rapist that you see as as like a, a kind of a standard or natural evolution for them where they 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 devolve or evolve i guess depending how you look at it or, or was there something you think that triggered that?
1: You know, it, it, it really is dependent upon the, the type of offender and the person. Uh, you know, very early on in the East Area Rapist case, Sacramento uh, law enforcement did consult with some uh, psychologists. And the, and the psychologists were saying, this is a guy that's going to kill. You know, so they knew this was a serious offender. However, like, uh, in fact, up on my wall, I've got some courtroom sketches. I just testified at this NorCal rapist uh, who's another serial rapist out in Northern California, large geographic span. But he is the type of rapist. NorCal rapist is the guy that would lay down next to the female victims and stroke their hair and whisper sweet nothings into their ear, basically trying to mimic a consensual relationship. He's your power reassurance type rapist. These guys rarely kill. And if they do, it's it's either to eliminate a witness or it's out of accident. But it's not something that they have an internal drive to do versus the East Area rapist is this power assertive slash anger retaliatory type of rapist. I mean, he is somebody that that is violent. He was psychologically sadistic. And so he was showing that kind of that innate personality where He's likely going to continue to escalate his level of violence, but it is—it's variable. But that—that that is an evolution for some of these serial predators. You know, they start out mm-hmm. with the the trespassing, the peeping into windows. They start breaking into houses uh, where when nobody's home, like Visalia Ransacker. Mm-hmm. Then they take the next step and they break into houses when there's people present. They may not. Attack those people. These people are just sleeping in their bed. And you see these videos of these types of individuals that will be standing in a couple's room or a woman's room, you know, at the foot of the bed, just looking at her, mm-hmm. possibly masturbating and then leaving. That's a dangerous offender right there because he has now crossed a barrier to where he is now inside a person's residence with the person present inside their room. That's the type of person that is more likely to go hands on and resort to physical violence and possibly escalate to where now they're not only just going to do a sexual assault, but potentially take it up to homicide.
0: So once he once he makes that jump in escalation to where he he now has committed his first homicide, where does he go from there? Does he does he step? Does he come back down, or does he keep it at that level?
1: Well, th- 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 you know that's. That is an interesting um, uh, kind of topic t- to discuss because with the Golden State Killer, once he's down in Southern California and starts killing people, we're not aware of him committing any other crimes where he's leaving the victims alive. Mm-hmm. But with with D'Angelo, you know, at the point that he is now in this original Night Stalker phase, he's already. Killed Claude Snell. He killed Brian and Katie Maggiore up in Sacramento when he was probably being mm-hmm. chased while they were out walking their dog, and they saw him out prowling. And then he he, he the the first homicide in Santa Barbara. the The male gets up and chase, you know, b- tries to come after him around the bed. And all three cases, are where he is, kind of reacting defensively. The victims are right. not doing what he's expecting, and now it's self preservation. But it's the next case in the original Night Stalker series in Ventura, March of 1980, three months after his first double homicide in Santa Barbara. Uh, Lyman and Charlene Smith, Smith are asleep in their bed, and the offender comes in and gets them bound in their room. And he ultimately he sexually assaults Charlene, um, and then he bludgeons Lyman and Charlene while they're laying side by side in their master bed. This I've described a sort of the the Golden State Killer's opus. This is a case, a homicide, that occurred from beginning to end the way he wanted it. He's not reacting defensively and shooting the people, the victims. He is bludgeoning this couple. And from this point on, all his homicides after that are bludgeoning homicides that he's doing because
0: that's what he wants to do. That's what he likes to do. So. This goes on. He's 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 now become a serial killer, and like you said, there's there's no, it's not every other or anything at that point. Every attack is a murder. That's right, and and that's his plan. And then is it 1981? All of a sudden, he just poof stops. Yes,
1: yeah. So he gets into a he goes into a house, and he's back in Santa Barbara. You know, so he's you know to 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 kind of go through, and it's just a brief series. We really only have six cases for the original Night Stalker, minus the the one that goes sideways and he's chased by the FBI agent. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, the, the double homicide in Santa Barbara in December of 79. Of then you have Lyman and Charlene Smith being killed in Ventura in March of 1980. Then he goes all the way down south to Laguna Niguel uh, in a gated community in an upper-class neighborhood and, and, and kills Bludgeons, Keith, and Patrice Harrington to death in their bed. Then he's out in Irvine and he kills a single female, uh, Manuela Huitun. Her husband happened to be in a hospital. Then he's back in, in July of 1981, the case that you're talking about with Gregory Sanchez and Sherry Domingo. He's back up in the Santa Barbara area. And it's after that case, we don't have anything for five years. But it's so important to understand what happened in that case, because in that case, when he first breaks into their room, Gregory Sanchez is already out of the bed facing him. He ends up shooting Gregory through the face. Gregory gets a uh, a bullet through the left cheek that exits out behind his left ear. It's a non-fatal wound, but Greg drops down to the floor. Now, the offender goes and interacts with Sherry Domingo up on the bed. There's evidence showing that she had been bound, and it appears that that Greg reanimates he comes he gets his you know his wits about him and the offender now is having to re-engage with six foot three Gregory Sanchez and and uh, there's evidence with blood patterns and, and the injuries to, to to Greg showing that there is hand-to-hand combat going on between the offender and Greg. Mm-hmm. After this attack, the offender looks like he's rapidly tr- leaving this residence. He's he's tossing bindings as he's running out of the house. Something spooked him. Like maybe a patrol unit, you know, rolled by or something. But I believe th- that uh the offender was scared. I think Sanchez scared him. And, you know, BTK Dennis Rader had a similar experience where he goes inside a house and gets into a fight with a male that he wasn't expecting to be there. And and, Rader, mm-hmm. and during his uh, interview, says, yeah, you know what? I was done. I, 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 I could have been killed. I could have been hurt. I could have been caught. I didn't want any of that to happen. I was done. So that's what I think is going through the Golden State Killer's mind after his interactions with Gregory Sanchez. But then five years later in Irvine, we have 19-year-old Janelle Cruz home alone, and she's bludgeoned to death in her bed. And then that was his last known attack, right? That's his last known attack. And, you know, this is where, you know, starting to correlate, uh, you know, the Golden State Killer now as being identified as Joseph D'Angelo. You know, at the time of Janelle's homicide, D'Angelo's 41 years old. Uh, he's no spring chicken. And this is now getting into the kind of the older range of of your serial predator. And this type of, of serial predator is a very physical type of predator he's out prowling he's hopping fences you know he's now becoming you know middle age and i almost hate to say that considering i'm i'm 52 you know but physically he must know that his his uh he his skills are diminishing his capabilities are diminishing and so i'm thinking he's you know going I just can't continue to do this anymore. Doesn't mean his fantasies didn't continue to go, but I personally don't think he has anything else after Janelle Cruz. And if he does, it's maybe one or two.
0: Well, and and there was that five-year gap where he was scared, and that was, you know, I I don't know a terrible amount about, you know, serial offenders and how they do it, but is it common? Do you see that often for them to... Stop on their own free will because a lot of times in cases I've studied, like where if it just stops, like well they must they're dead, they're arrested, something happened that caused them to to stop. The fact that he's that type of predator, obviously is still having those fantasies, but but to go five years without acting on it, do it once and then just done. How common is that?
1: Well, yeah, I've seen cases series in which these offenders uh, work in clusters. They you know they'll have cases in clusters and then there'll be big breaks in between. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of this is going to be due to what's going on in their personal life. You know, they have stressors going on. And so they go out and they're offending, you know, as part of, you know, the way that they compensate for these stressors that are going on. When we look at D'Angelo, D'Angelo's wife was two months pregnant with their first child at the time of the Sanchez Domingo case. So Mm -hmm. now, after that case, he now has a newborn baby in the house. You know, Now, is that something that uh, caused him to be occupied, caused him to mentally change You know, the thoughts about what he was doing? We don't know. But it is a significant event in anybody's life to have a, a child. And, and that's what our offender was dealing with after that case. And it turns out that at the time of Janelle Cruz's homicide, his wife was two months pregnant with their second child. So is the stress of the you know the the, the kid being, going to be born and, and being in, entering his life is that something that is causing him to go out to offend and then once he has the kid you know he stops offending for five years and now his wife's pregnant again he has to go out and relieve that stress and he runs across beautiful Janelle and he just can't help himself and then he has a second child a second baby in the house and now he can't offend and he's forty one years old and he's going well I'm I'm I just can't do this anymore don't know you know unfortunately. He has never given us any insight into his thought process
0: at all. Has, has he ever spoken with investigators or interviewers like law enforcement at all to share any insight? I know that he eventually pleads guilty, but is is he ever has he ever shared anything about what he did and why? Nothing,
1: nothing at all. You know, we after he was arrested. He was, of course, interviewed. Uh, he was interviewed for, for many, many hours. And um, all the, the various people that went in there, they're just literally monologuing because he wasn't responding to any of their questions. But did you ever get to a chance to
0: interview him?
1: No. In fact, you know, the strategy, Ken Clark, who is a very experienced uh, homicide investigator with Sac Sheriff's Office, He and I were the ones that authored the arrest warrant. And then once D'Angelo was taken in custody, we had developed a strategy where Ken was going to go in and we're going to do it in the order of the East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker cases. So Ken was going to handle uh, interviewing D'Angelo on the Sacramento cases and most notably the the Maggiore double homicide, because that was what he was arrested for, you know, because it was, Mm -hmm. you know, homicides don't have the statute of limitations. And then I was going to join Ken to continue the interview on the Central Valley and the East Bay cases, because that those were my wheelhouse. You know, that's right. you know in part because you know the East Bay was my jurisdiction, but I also really focused in on the Central Valley, the Modesto Stockton Davis cases that were sort of the tweener cases between Sacramento and East Bay. Unfortunately, the the way D'Angelo responded to Ken Clark's questioning, uh, during the Sacramento phase of the interview where he's not responding. And then he, he basically, he asks for his wife and the way he asks for his wife is, well, where's my wife? She's an attorney. And now it's, Oh, you know, has he invoked, you know, now we right. have a Miranda issue. And then, so we're huddling trying to figure this out. And, you know, there's, you know process that goes on there and then he ends up kind of making a similar statement a little bit further in the interview and we did not want him to invoke before investigators from southern california who had homicides had an opportunity to talk to him so because of that that's where now the the original strategy of me going in under the assumption that he would be you know at least Interacting with us, that went out the window. You know, it was like, okay, we can't just continue to press him on the sexual assaults. We need to get a homicide investig an agency with homicide uh, in into that interview room, and so that's where uh, Steve Rhodes from Ventura, who was on site, uh, was able to go in with Ken Clark to try to talk to him about the Lyman and Charlene Smith case. And
0: it was still the same. There was just no information coming out of D'Angelo. There's nothing. Just stayed cold through the whole. From what I've seen, in any of the documentaries or anything, it looks like he just was very cold. He, you know, in his hearings, he, you know, he's they showed video of him climbing around his his cell, and then he'd go out to the hearings in a wheelchair, looking like you could barely even move.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, D'Angelo is he, he, throughout the, the his his uh, career as a serial predator. I mean, his, his number one priority was self-preservation. And once he was arrested and he's sitting alone in that interview room, I could see his wheels turning inside his head and he's, he is strategizing, you know, he's a, he's a tactician, you know, and he's sitting there trying to think, how am I going to either get out of this? And he very quickly realized I'm not going to get out of this. And the Mm -hmm. next thing is, is how am I going to minimize what's going to happen to me moving forward? And that's where you start seeing this feeble old man and possibly even a mental health issue with the babbling he's doing and you know the you know they I didn't hear this personally but you know the jerry that he's saying you know jerry made me do it yeah. you know I personally heard him say you know he made me do it i should have been stronger but he made me do it so it's sort of like, well, is he setting up a mental health defense? And then you see him right. being, you know, first court appearance, and he's being wheeled out in a wheelchair. And I was like, well, no, that's that's not D'Angelo. The guy's bombing down on his motorcycle, 100 miles an hour on surface streets. The guy is right. very physically capable. This is a bunch of BS, and it was part of his
0: strategy. Yeah. So you you had you made the original connection. You 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 are you kind of directed that when they piece the. East Area Rapist Cases and the original Night Stalker Cases. And then years go by, and this is a cold case. Were you working on the case that entire time? Was it like a pet project on the back shelf for whenever you got a minute?
1: Yeah, no, you know, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. Because when the connection to Southern California was made, I literally just went into a support role. And I sent everything I had on the East Area Rapist Case down to Larry Poole at Orange County Sheriff's Office. And it was like, Okay, Larry, here's here's everything. You need anything from me. I'll, I'll be there for you. but I just thought in a matter of months, this case was going to be solved in 2001. Uh, and mm-hmm. I I was busy. Uh, you know, not only did I have my primary job responsibilities as now a manager and supervisor within the sheriff's office running you know a fairly complex operation with forensic services and the criminalistics unit. I had many other cases I was working, Um, and so I kind of just pushed away from East Area Rapist, and outside of, uh, you know, a few tips that would come in here and there, I didn't do anything with it up until roughly around 2010, you know, almost a decade, and at this point, this is when I've promoted up to Chief of Forensics. I'm a division commander within the Sheriff's Office, and I'm writing memos and doing spreadsheets and going, attending, you know, high level executive meetings and and all this stuff. And I'm bored out of my skull and I'm looking at my file drawer in my office. I had always kept the East area rapist files with me and I'm looking at it going, you know, that case still is not solved. And that's Mm when I, that's when I reengaged and that's when I was like, okay. And at this point I had, Moved into very much an investigative type of role, and my department really didn't know I was doing these kinds of things. You know, this is where I say mm-hmm. I kind of go rogue. So I had done a fair amount of investigative work on other cases, and I was like, you know what? I need to start digging into the Sierra rapist case again, and that's what I did. I, I ended up developing a strategy, and then started looking at it. We had maximized. So we thought what we could do with the physical evidence and the DNA at that point in time. It's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna start tracking down people and start talking to people and, and seeing if
0: I can't figure this thing
1: out. Who is the East Area rapist?
0: So when do you come into contact with Michelle McNamara, who was the author of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, who was the the citizen sleuth that had been obsessed with this case for years?
1: Yes. So Larry Poole, before he moved on from Orange County Sheriff's Office, he was at one of our task force meetings. And this is something that, you know, your, your listeners need to understand because a lot of people believe that nobody was working on this case when Michelle got involved. And because Michelle got involved, now all of a sudden law enforcement decides to do something. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we had a group of people, pri- a core group of uh, investigators across the state who were convening and working diligently on this case. And Larry Poole had come into c- communication with Michelle. I think she must have reached out to him. And so he brought mm-hmm. sh- he brought Michelle's name up to the task force saying, hey, she wants to do an article for Los Angeles magazine. Is the task force willing to have this article done. And we as a group said, yes, it's time that the public knew more about this case and we could use the public's health. So that at that point, we decided to cooperate with Michelle. Well, I didn't know Michelle at all. You know, but she was, uh-huh. you know, for me, she was just going to be another journalist that was going to interview me about the case. And she ends up calling me several weeks later after that meeting. And, uh, you know, I've, t- I've told the story where I'm kind of standoffish. I'm more Joe Friday with her, <laughs> you know, it's uh, like, right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, you know, she's asking me all sorts of questions, but it, it became very apparent that she, she knew the case. And when I would kind of be vague about an answer, she would zing me <laughs> and say, oh no, you know, I know blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. You got me. That's true. It, you know, so that's how I first got to know Michelle. And, uh, it, it really, that relationship just strengthened over the course of the next 12 months, you know, where, you know, she was a journalist, a civilian on the outside, and I was doing my investigation and then she started gaining my trust a little bit. And so I fed her bits of information. And then when her magazine article came out in Los Angeles Magazine, I was scared. I thought, Oh no, she's going to burn me. You know, with some of the things that I told her in confidence. You know, it's going to be out right. there, and and I'm just going to get reamed by my agency. But she didn't. You know, she she held her mud and she uh, kept whatever I told her off the record in confidence out of that article. And that's really when I was like, okay, here's somebody I can trust.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a couple months after that that article came out, she called me up and was like, Paul, I've been asked to do a book on the case and what do you think about that and what do you think that the task force would think about that? And I was like, I'm completely supportive. You know, we need to have a good book done. At that point, two of the original investigators, Larry Crompton and, and Richard Shelby, had each written books about the East Area mm-hmm. Rapist. But, you know, their law enforcement. These books were not polished um, and it was like, Michelle was a writer and I was like, I think this would be something that would be good, so I fully supported it and uh, offered to give her a tour of crime scene locations and a sit down interview. And she she came up to the Bay Area and we rode around. Uh, you know, she's recording the entire time we're talking, and it was really at that point that a friendship developed. And mm-hmm. it, it was it was a professional friendship, but there was also a connection you know, on on a personal level. And we started chatting about, you know, our personal lives and, and stuff. And from that point on, I just kind of opened up to her investi- you know what with, with what I was really doing investigatively. And she, as she was writing her book, she ends up getting off into the investigative tangents. I mean, to the point where she's going having to go to her publisher saying, I need more time because she wasn't writing. She was investigating and we were supporting right. each other, you know, and that's where I've said, you know, I was kind of a lone wolf. You know, I just kind of did my own thing. I never had a partner on this case. Well, she became my
0: partner during that time. Oh, nice. And then you know, through that process, I have to ask, did you ever meet her husband?
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, I met her husband a couple of times. Patton Oswalt, of course, you know, very famous uh, stand-up comedian and an actor I didn't know him, you know, much, you know, he was the voice of Ratatouille, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. But it, it was one of those things where, uh, I think I first met him, they hosted the task force at a, uh, at a, um, restaurant down in Santa Barbara after one of our meetings. And Michelle wanted to read a passage of, of, of a, of section out of her book to make sure that it was kind of you know, we, we got the vibe and, and, you know, they had their, she had her ulterior motive. She was trying to get closer to some of the other investigators on the task force, you know? So by mm-hmm. uh, doing this, she was able to get, you know, like I'm introducing her to Gary Kitzman from Santa Barbara and, and stuff. Um, so that was the first time I met Patton. And I will tell you, you know, Patton is the sweetest man. You know, that's the only way I can describe right. him. He is so When you see him up on stage, and he's got this huge personality, and he loves to engage with the audience and 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 rip on people and and all that, but in person, he's just he's just a nice guy. It's just like, well, this is very different than what I was expecting.
0: Well, that's good to hear because you know, I I mean, this is a side note. We'll get back into into the important stuff. But you know, I'm a big fan of his, both his acting and his comedy, and I've seen him on a few shows where he's interviewed about this case, and he just you know where he was you know not in his character but himself. And and he just he seems like just just a great guy that was very supportive of his of his wife, who for those that don't realize this, Michelle McNamara passed away prior to the catching of Joseph D'Angelo.
1: Yeah, no, I I um, we had gone uh, to Chia in Las Vegas, California Homicide Investigators Association. So every year it's an annual meeting, big, huge meeting, you know, 800 plus attendees, homicide investigators from all over the state and even outside the state. Oh, and it's so big it has to be held in in part in Las Vegas there's other reasons it's being held in Las Vegas but through connections uh Patton ends up becoming the uh, kind of the entertainment for the Thursday night dinner you know he's doing a stand-up act and awesome I mean he had all of us just rolling but during that time I spent the week with Michelle we would meet in the in the at it was at the Palms uh and we would meet at in you know the kind of the little restaurant area downstairs. And then I ended up going up to their room in order to see some of the materials that she had access to that I had never seen in the case, including photos from some of the homicide cases in Southern California. And so now I'm just like, oh God, she's got stuff that might I could use to potentially help solve the case. And I just remember Patton coming in, he had tried to go downstairs to read a book. And because he's Patton, you know, he is just constantly right. being pestered and he's just like, I, I just can't get be alone. You know, and and, right. and that was my first realization of seeing a celebrity and their life in terms of, you know, they, they almost have to live in a shell because if they do venture outside of that shell, they just can't do what they want to do. But that was, we spent that week together um, and then it was about six weeks after that is when she passed away.
0: Right. And it was it was a tragedy. You never got to see the case come to fruition. But you were able to, uh, with the help of a few other people, take the ball across the across the goal line. uh, And you used you some some interesting technology and kind of the, the the short version. I'll let you walk through it. But I mean, essentially, you used ancestral DNA. To to narrow down who Joseph D'Angelo was, what what was what was that process? Kind of just a condensed version. How did you guys end up catching the Golden State Killer? You know, I had
1: started diving into genealogy and DNA all the way back before I m- met Michelle. It was back in 2012, and there was a, a genetic genealogist by the name of Colleen Fitzpatrick, and she's still very active today. And we were using an older. Uh, genealogy technology based on YSTRs. Uh, the Y chromosome is what makes you a, a man, makes me a man, and it's the the DNA is passed from from generation to generation on the father's side. And the hope using this technology was to try to uncover the East Area Rapists, Golden State Killers' surname, because you know, just like the Y chromosome. You know, our surname is passed down on the male lineage, and that's what genealogists Mm -hmm. utilize. So I'd been doing genealogy. So I was already kind of keyed into the genealogy side. When I got called into a conference call on a completely unrelated case, it was a 2002 homicide in Contra Costa County. I had gone out on as a supervisor. Unsoon June had been bludgeoned and buried underneath her house. And then her live-in boyfriend, Larry Vanner, was arrested, and then he just almost immediately pleads guilty, which is very unusual for a homicide guy to, to plead guilty. And in investigating him, Larry Vanner wasn't his real identity. He was a mystery man. We didn't know who he was, even with everything, after being arrested and even being convicted. Didn't know who he was. But... Through fingerprints, his criminal history had been linked together, and in 1986, he had been arrested for child abandonment down in Santa Cruz, and he had abandoned a six-year-old girl named Lisa Jensen, and he claimed that she was his daughter and that her mom had died in a traffic accident, I think, back in Texas. Well, now... You know, he's been arrested, you know, for this homicide in my county. And I was like, well, what about this Lisa Jensen? And uh, one of my good buds, who was the homicide investigator on on the Ensign June homicide, Roxanne Grunheide, became absolutely attached in terms of, okay, who is this Lisa Jensen? Because uh, we did some DNA and he's not her biological father. We believe she's been abducted by him from somewhere across the United States. But we, over Mm -hmm. since that time, had tried. Rox had tried. I was trying, using traditional DNA and traditional law enforcement um, resources to identify this Lisa Jensen. Well, now in, in 2017, February 2017, I'm called to a conference call by Roxanne. And then Peter Headley from San Bernardino Sheriff's Office is on the line, and he's going, I've identified Lisa Jensen. I was like, how'd you do that? And he had identified her as Don Bodin, a missing girl out of New Hampshire, from all the way across the country. I was like, how did you do that? And he goes, well, I used a website called DNAadoption.com, and I relied on a genealogist, Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, so I left that conference call going. I'm calling this Barbara. And I mm-hmm. get back to my office and I call Barbara up and I say, "Hey, I'm working this case." I don't tell her what case I'm working. I say, "It's a big deal case with how you identified Lisa. Would that work with an unknown offender?" And she was like, "I see no reason why it wouldn't." In fact, she was work at the time, she was working on trying to identify Larry Vanner. And it was basically doing the same thing. Here's a guy. We know who he is. He's in custody. In fact, he died in prison You know, before uh-huh. we had a chance to go back and, and interview him. But she ends up identifying him ultimately as Terry Rasmussen. And what the technique that she used to identify Lisa Jensen and Larry Vanner, uh, respectively, as Don Bodin and, and Terry Rasmussen, is the technique that I was like, will this work for this Golden State Killer case? Though I don't tell her what it is. And so that was the first step in terms of utilizing this. And th- there's some things that that happened with the investigation and the whole YSTR path I was going going down. We ended up doing a search warrant up in up in uh, Oregon, and that, that didn't work out in terms of it wasn't our guy or anybody. He wasn't closely related. But afterwards, I had an FBI. He's, he's a lawyer with the FBI. He's general counsel out of FBI LA by the name of Steve Kramer. And we had just had our last, very last task force meeting on this series. And this is March of 2017. And uh, the Steve Kramer calls me out of the blue. And I'd never met him. I'd, I'd heard his name uh, prior, mm-hmm. but I had never met him. And he says, I hear you are pursuing something about genealogy and DNA. Cause I had given the task force an up as an update on it. And he goes, I believe in that. How can I help you? And I was like, oh, thank God, <laughs> you know, I've got somebody right. interested. Cause I was kind of on my own at this point. I ha- had another FBI agent that was helping me with some stuff. But then when it, the Oregon thing didn't work out, he, he kind of tapped out. And now I've got this other guy with federal authority and I was a, an FBI task force officer at the time as well. It's like, oh, thank God! Yes, you you can absolutely help me, and this is where I'm at. You know, I have talked to this Barbara Ray Venter, but she's not calling me back. But I think what she did in this case is the way we can solve this case. So Kramer and I just start self educating ourselves on this genealogy tool, and you know, getting this what's the, what we call a SNP profile, single nucleotide polymorphism profile, very different from what law enforcement utilizes for their forensic DNA testing. And it became, we have to do this. But the problem was, is that I had consumed all the DNA from the cases out of Contra Costa County doing the, the, the actual original testing as well as the YSTR testing. So now mm-hmm. I had to reach out to Southern California agencies, and Steve was located down there reach out to them to see who would be willing to utilize some of their valuable homicide DNA evidence on this completely unproven tool. And right. fortunately, we, uh, we went down. I, I did a roadshow. I went to multiple agencies and then ultimately was presenting to Ventura DA's office and uh, uh, their investigator, Steve Rhodes, and their biology unit supervisor and kind of explained, this is how I think we can utilize your DNA evidence to solve this case. And Steve was like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know." And he got his boss's uh, signature. And that turned out to be absolutely fortuitous because part of the problem at this point in time is that the genealogy testing labs required a huge amount of DNA because they don't deal mm-hmm. with forensic samples. They deal with you know, five milliliters of saliva that you put in a tube that you send back in the genealogy kit, right? Right. Well, we're dealing with minuscule amounts of semen evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, how are we going to get this profile generated? Because these labs don't have the technology to do that. Well, it turns out that the pathologist that did the autopsies back in 1980 on Lyman and Charlene Smith made it a routine to collect two sexual assault kits from the female. Well, one kit had been given to law enforcement, and over the decades, the DNA out of that kit had been consumed. You know, So it was like, right. is there enough remaining to do this new tool? While Steve Rhodes is, is marching down on uh, working with his lab and looking back at the evidence, he realized, oh, there was a second sexual assault kit collected by that pathologist. And it's never left the coroner's office. So he goes and finds it there. And it's been untouched. It's still in its original sealed state. So no DNA had ever been consumed out of that kit. So that gets submitted to the Ventura lab. And the DNA analyst calls me up. And at this point, you know, I had said, I need a lot of DNA. And she says, I can give you a tube with 500 nanograms of DNA. Now, your listeners are not, most of them are not going to know what that means that for from a forensic sample that is a huge amount of dna that is a gold mine of dna mm-hmm. uh, and i told that dna analyst i i was like i in in good conscience cannot accept that much dna but what i do need is i need 210 nanograms i need 200 nanograms <laughs> to go to the 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 genealogy testing lab and then i need 10 nanograms to go to the dr green at uc santa cruz cuz we we're going to attempt whole genome sequencing and next thing I know, she was able to produce that tube, and Steve Kramer had a, a local agent grab that tube, and then that we got that going to the genealogy lab. So that was a huge thing to get that sexual assault kit and to get that much DNA. And at this point, it's it, you know we're forming a team. It's Kramer, myself, and then uh, uh, Steve Kramer had a, um, a, a a she what was her title. Uh, a crime. She was like a a crime analyst or an investigative assistant out of his office down there in Orange County named Melissa Parasot. And I was saying, I need somebody out of Sacramento because I all along was Golden State Killer, a Sacramento based. And I want somebody out of Sacramento who has access to law enforcement databases. And so I ended up, you know, know, talking with the elected DA, Anne Marie Schubert, and she gave permission for Lieutenant Kirk Campbell and investigative assistant Monica Tchaikowski to be part of this. But because of some politics that I won't go into, we were doing this covertly and uh, nobody outside of this team knew what we were doing. And we kind of, we got the the original genealogy results uh, and I I send them up to Sacramento saying, go, you know, because this Monica is just awesome. Start working your magic. But we didn't know what we were doing. And Barbara, the genealogist, had didn't communicate with me after that initial outreach. I thought she didn't want anything to do with law enforcement. Well, it turns out she had a major health issue. And so she just happened in November 2017, reached back out to me and say, Hey, Paul, do you still need help on that case? And we were just <laughs> now getting the, you know, the DNA done. It was like, oh my God, yes. You know, so Barbara ends up becoming the kind of the overseer and the teacher of the process, and so we get the initial DNA results with the uh, potential, you know, the the individuals out there that share DNA with the Golden State Killer in January of 2018, and we start building trees, use utilizing this genealogy tool that Barbara is directing us on, and we. You know, are building trees for like three months. It's frustrating. You know, we didn't have close relatives, uh, so we were having to build extensive trees. And ultimately, we start seeing some some males that fit the right age range, have the geographic connection to California, start popping up in the in the trees. And that's where mm-hmm. I just kick into it's what I call investigation one oh one. You know, is this the Golden State Killer? You know, and, and how does this person add up with what I know about the Golden State Killer?
0: Right. And then so you're you have these family trees, you narrow down a few people, and then you're able to kind of by process of elimination land on you think it's Joseph D'Angelo. Right.
1: And you know, and, and for me, I was really key keying in on this this guy who at you know at the time was living in Colorado. And uh, he matched what my theory of the Golden State Killer case was. Cause I thought the Golden State Killer was in the development construction field. And this guy was that. And I mean, here's this guy that we find, you know, through Golden State Killer genealogy DNA and he's got uncles that are living in the very neighborhood where the East Area Rapist first attacks. One uncle, I end up interviewing you know, two of his ex-wives, and he's a rapist. He tried to kill one of the ex-wives, so he's a bad guy. The other uncle happens to move down to Stockton uh, the same month that we first had have, have the first East Area Rapist Stockton attack, and then that uncle buys a house from the, uh, the company that the second Stockton... A female victim worked for. And I was like, God, you know, it's just there's enough churn there that I thought this was the, the guy. But then with testing of one of that guy's close relatives who we've never identified, we're able to eliminate the Colorado guy. And for me, the last person uh, was this Joseph D'Angelo who was an Auburn cop. And I'm looking at him going, I'm just not buying it. I don't see how a full-time law enforcement officer all the way up in Auburn is committing all these attacks over Northern California from 1976 to 1979. But I was like, you know, I, I got to dig into them. And that's when I started. And I'm I'm a week away from retirement or two weeks away from retirement at this point. <laughs> and so the, uh-huh. the time is clicking and I'm like, okay, well, I got to figure out this D'Angelo character. And that's when I'm, you know, I, I track down, you know, his former uh, police chief that fired him when he got arrested for shoplifting, a dog repellent and a hammer up in Citrus Heights in uh, June of 79 or July of 79. Um, you know, I, I reach out to Bonnie, his ex-fiance. Uh, she doesn't return my phone call. I didn't know she was actually out of the country at the time, you know, and then I'm up in Sacramento just researching him at that point.
0: And then, as the story goes, as we, we wrap this up, they they narrow down to him. A team goes and collects his DNA from what is it—the handle of his car. We get the match, and he gets it. You know, even even knowing the story, just you know, I just kind of reviewing things. I watched the recent 2020 episode that you were on again, and every time I see it, it's just such a. It almost gives you chills when, after decades and decades and decades, that all of a sudden, you know, what you must have felt when you get the call that. It's a match. We got him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you know, that, I mean, obviously that, that phone call from Kirk Campbell, you know, I'm, I'm out in Colorado Springs buying a house and I'm eating at PF Chang's and I get a phone call (laughs) and, and I'd been getting updates on the surveillance, you know, and I just thought that's what it was. And then Kirk, as soon as I answered the phone. Instead of the, the typical, you know, salutation, hey, Paul, how you doing, whatever, it's like, you can't tell anybody, you know, he had gotten <laughs> the, the DNA results back from the, the door handle from D'Angelo's car. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, there's there's certain memories about, you know, the identification of D'Angelo that will be with me for forever. Yeah, they're just crystal clear. I just, yeah, because it is, it's such a momentous, you know, at that point, you know, I had been involved in the case for 24 years. You know, so to 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 get, you know, to think about 24 years, and as we talked about, it wasn't like 24 const, you know, 24 years of constant work, but it was still 24 years of my life. In the last 10 years of my life, I was 24 seven three sixty five on the case. That well, I was just obsessed. I was going to solve this. Thing.
0: Right. Yeah, that's, it's, it's an amazing end to to a really intriguing and amazing story. And with that, Paul, we ran a lot longer than I promised you I would keep you for today. But I, I appreciate you coming on and 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 taking the time and telling the story. Uh, it, it's been a real pleasure. And if people want to come check out your podcast, it is The Murder Squad. Yep. Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad. Uh,
1: it can be pretty much uh, found, uh, you know, on any place where you can uh, download podcasts. You know, and, and I am in the process of trying to get a book about my career, which, of course, includes Golden State Killer case uh, written. And, uh, you know, hopefully that will be announced uh, in the upcoming year.
0: Awesome. That'll be great. And thanks so much, Paul. Hope to talk again soon.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.